everyone. Back out this afternoon. And uh, tonight we're going to, you know, as you may see on the outline, during our last question and answer period, I had a question that was turned in about the uh, Holy Spirit. It was a question related to, uh, to the topic. Because the question read, explain baptism by the Holy Spirit. And is this the same baptism needed to be added to the body of Christ or to be added to the church? And uh, the simple answer to that question is yes. It is baptism by the Holy Spirit is the same baptism that is needed to be added to the Lord's church or added to the body of Christ. But that really doesn't clarify the whole question about quote-unquote Holy Spirit baptism. So... I did promise the person that I would, in a lesson coming up, and I'm doing that tonight, I would talk about uh, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, talk about baptism, uh, our Holy Spirit baptism, let me just be very general about it, and uh, try to clarify maybe some uh, differences, some discussion, uh, etc., that exist about that. Now, I thought a lot about how I wanted to approach this lesson. I preached on it quite a bit over the years, obviously. And um, this happens to be a subject that every time I teach it or every time I preach it, um, I think that I teach the truth, but I come away feeling you probably could have done a better job of that. More than likely, I'll go home and feel that same thing tonight. But I decided I would approach it a little bit differently than I have in the past. And uh, anyway, going into it, I feel like it might be a, a better job that I'll do with it. That being said, let's take a look at it. I divided the lesson, as you can see in your outline, into two general categories, and that is the relate. And I'm talking about the relationship between Christians and the Holy Spirit. And if you'll notice, the first bold, major section that we'll spend probably two thirds of the time or so on is the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Christians of the first century, and I mean that exclusively. That is only to the, the Christians of the first century. When you're speaking of the Holy Spirit, I think the easiest way to determine exactly, as you're looking in the Bible, you're seeing different groups, different things happening, like the passage James read a moment ago, where Jesus talks about baptizing with the Holy Spirit, etc. Perhaps the easiest way to understand exactly what's going on with each group, what they had, what they got, what they could do, what they couldn't do, or to understand... Uh, this relationship, you might bet better, uh, it might be better if you understood one specific term. I'd like for you to turn with me, if you will, to John 3. And it's something that John the Baptist refers to or alludes to in regard to Jesus. Now you'll notice that, and I'm not going to get deep into this context, but there was a little bit of a discussion. John's disciples basically come to him and say, hey, you know the guy... The, that you baptize well, his disciples, etc. Uh, he's over there baptizing, they're baptizing, and what about that? Now John begins to talk about Jesus, and I'm going to jump in the middle of his discussion. You can easily see that he's talking about Jesus here. Verse 29, he speaks of the bridegroom, and that would be Christ. But look at verse 30 and read carefully with me. He, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And then he goes on to say something very similar to what we just read a moment ago. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. So he speaks of Jesus' preeminence. 
And he says, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. That is, they can't take it all, they can't accept it, they don't really comprehend it, I think he's saying. But he goes on to say, He that has received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. And then notice this phrase, For God gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. So what he is saying is, God does not meter. And that's the word in the original, the word from which we get meter. It's a word for measurement. God does not meter the amount or or extent or whatever of the Holy Spirit that is given to Jesus. Now what that indicates, and certainly with all other scripture, what that is indicating is that Jesus alone has the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, without measure. It means he has total, uh, he has the total amount or extent, or however you want to put that, of the Holy Spirit, but only him. Everyone else has the Holy Spirit by measure. And that's how I'm going to focus on it. I'm going to look at the different groups, and I'm going to talk about the measurement, if you will, of the Holy Spirit and what that means. So if you're looking at your outline, you'll notice that as I address each group, I talk about what they have, and I'm starting with Jesus. He's a group unto himself, or a category unto himself. He has the Holy Spirit without measure, not limited in any sense, and it means certain things. And why am I going through all of this? Because of all the misunderstanding that exists about Holy Spirit baptism, regardless of where you come from. If you're in some denominational church, if you're in the Lord's church, it doesn't matter. There is some understanding about the Holy Spirit, probably some misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit. So when we look at Jesus, again we would say of him, John 3 and verse 34... He has the Holy Spirit without measure. Now that gave him then, and if you'll notice on your outline, I put several things down here of abilities that that gave him. And I want you to understand, I'll mention this a couple of times, Jesus is also divine. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. There are things Jesus can do that he can do in and of himself because he has the power of God. We're not talking about that. Specifically, we are talking about the Holy Spirit being given to Jesus, and in turn, what Jesus does, that confirms the message. If you were noticing what James read a moment ago, Jesus was saying, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and that will enable you to then go out and be witnesses. It's a confirmation. The use of the Holy Spirit in this manner is for confirmation of the truth that's being spoken. Okay, so go back and let's say Jesus has the Holy Spirit without measure. What does it give him the ability to do? Well, first of all, since he has the Holy Spirit without measure, he has full authority in respect or with respect to the Holy Spirit. He only. So he has the authority to direct the Holy Spirit. In every other case, when we look at in the New Testament where someone has relationship to the Holy Spirit or quote-unquote gets the Spirit or gets filled with the Spirit, they have no authority over that. They don't direct the Holy Spirit to do anything. In fact, it's just the opposite. For example, Acts 16, the Holy Spirit comes to Paul and says, don't go here. Okay, I'll go here. No, don't go there. Go here. That's the Holy Spirit directing Paul, not the other way around. 
But that's not the case with Jesus. With Jesus, we see Jesus saying of the Holy Spirit a number of times, I will send the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to get into it tonight, but you could break that down and you could talk about inspiration, the Holy Spirit coming upon people to, for example, write a book in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit comes on the individual, carries them along to do that, but the direction is from Jesus. Jesus sends, John 16, the Holy Spirit. I will send. And he directs the Holy Spirit with regard to inspiration, to the baptism with the Holy Spirit, to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so forth and so on. And I think a case can be made basically for every operation of the Spirit that Jesus has all authority. But beyond that, having the Spirit without measure, and maybe we can begin to understand as it breaks down here, if he has the Spirit without measure... He then has the ability to baptize other people with the Holy Spirit. When John the Baptist first introduced Jesus, uh, Mark 3 or Luke 3, Jesus comes on the scene. This is where Jesus came to be baptized in water by John the Baptist. But John said of, of Jesus, this is the one that has the ability to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has the Spirit without measure. Therefore, he has the ability to baptize others with the Holy Spirit. And he exercised that twice. He exercised that upon the apostles. If you look at at Acts chapter 1, that's what he was saying. James read that for us. He was saying, stay in Jerusalem. I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I was paraphrasing, of course, but that's exactly what he did about seven days later on the day of Pentecost. Later in Acts 10, he will baptize, he will baptize the household of Cornelius with the Holy Spirit. He does it twice and for very specified reasons. Now let me slow down for a moment. Is that Holy Spirit baptism? Yeah, it is. It's Holy Spirit baptism. But I would rather be very very specific about it and as specific as the New Testament is. So if you'll notice what I say here, and you may want to underline it if you're writing on your outline, the ability to baptize others, notice, with the Holy Spirit. That is literally to immerse them in the Holy Spirit like we're immersed in water. Jesus has the ability to baptize others with the Holy Spirit. And he only does that twice. And beyond those two times, the apostles in Acts 1, the household of Cornelius in Acts 10, we never see... That mentioned again, in other words, we never see baptism with the Holy Spirit. We never see it mentioned again. We never see it happen. We never see it promised or any indication that it is going to be something for the future. It is just a very specific case that happens twice and for two different specified reasons. In the case of the apostles, for all of that ability to go into the whole world and carry the authority of Jesus, and in the case of Cornelius, to show the equality between Gentiles coming into the body of Christ or coming into the covenant with God to the Jews. So only two times and for very specified reasons. Now again, and let me mention this one more time and then I won't belabor this point, but again, that has nothing to do with Jesus' divine power. Jesus has ability, and maybe the easiest place to see that is in John 2 and verses 24 and 25, for example. Jesus can look into the hearts of people and know their heart. 
And he didn't need anybody. He didn't need any kind of revelation or anybody to tell him what was in the heart of men, as it says there, because he knew all men. That's Jesus' divine ability. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about something you can see. Miracles that are performed, that can be seen, that confirm that something is the truth. For example, the truth that the apostles will carry the doctrine of Christ, or the truth that Gentiles are equal to Jews. So Jesus, the Holy Spirit without measure, what specific ability does it give him? It gives him the ability to baptize others with the Holy Spirit. All right, let's go to the next group then, the apostles. If you'll go over with me to Luke chapter 24, and I'm not going to read every verse, but follow along with me from Luke, uh, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, which Luke also writes, and several things that Luke recorded. Start in Luke 24 and go down to verse 49. It's obvious he's writing to the, or speaking here to the apostles. And he said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Notice, I send. I have that authority to direct. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but you wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued or endowed with power from on high. Now go to Acts 1 that James read for us. We see it again. Look at Acts 1 and verses, well, in verse 2 you can easily see we're talking about the apostles. And go down to verse 4 again. Being assembled together with them, that is the apostles, he commanded them, that is the apostles, that they, the apostles, should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he says, you have heard of me. John truly baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Now I want you to go over to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. If you hold your finger there at Acts 1, where we just read, and go over to Acts 2 and look at verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven or divided tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance of the ability to speak. Now who is this? Well, it's the apostles. How do you know it's the apostles only? There's a rule of grammar that you follow the antecedent of a pronoun. And you'll notice we're speaking in Acts chapter 2 and verses 1 and following. They, them, they, them. All right, so you go back to the antecedent. The antecedent, the first time it occurs by name, that is a proper noun, is in the previous verse, Acts 1, verse 26, where the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. But you could trace, trace this all the, back, all the way back through chapter 1, beginning at chapter 1 and verse 2. And I'd say you ought to do this. You should go home and do this just for your own uh, study. And start at Acts 1 and verse 2 and note you're talking about the apostles. And then consistently throughout chapter 1, they, them, they, them, they, them, numbered with the 11 apostles. And they were all assembled in one place. And they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you know that? Well, because of all the things that are said. If you look at all the promises, the promise we read in Luke 24, the promise Jesus makes here the week earlier in Acts 1, they're in Jerusalem. They're all filled with power from on high. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit because it fits the criteria 
the description you see in Acts 2 is exactly where it was supposed to happen and exactly what was supposed to happen. So therefore you know when it happens, that's what it is. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is baptizing them with the Holy Spirit. Now when you look at the apostles, what does that mean? Well, obviously they speak with other languages here. It certainly gave them the ability to do that. And the speaking with other languages confirms that's what happened. But they have more than that. As you continue to look in the New Testament, uh, in verses that follow, you realize that they have an ability, since they have been, and again, if I was writing on my, my outline, I'd draw an arrow back to baptism with the Holy Spirit. They have an ability to do something. What is that? They have the ability, first of all, to lay hands on people. Now, how do, why do we say it's only the apostles? Well, let's read some verses. Look at Acts chapter 8 for a moment. And in Acts chapter 8, incidentally, there is a guy named Philip. The apostles laid their hands on Philip and gave him miraculous ability. You can go back to chapter 6 and see that. But Philip goes down to Samaria and Philip preaches the gospel. We see that. Verse 12, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized. So Philip preaches and makes converts. They become Christians. But, and let's look at the difference here between Philip and, say, the apostles doing that. Well, Philip preaches to them. Simon, verse 13, he also obeys. Now look down at verse 14. Now when the apostles who were still in Jerusalem, Philip is not, this is not the apostle Philip, he's not an apostle here, so when the apostles who were still in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. Why would they do that? Is Philip not able to preach the gospel? Well, he is. In fact, he's been given that ability to do so. Is Philip not able to confirm the message he's preaching? Yes, he is. We see back in chapter 6 and we see here in chapter 8, he can do miracles to confirm the word. So why are the apostles being sent? Well, it tells us here. In verse 14, they sent Peter and John, verse 15, who, when they were come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So a natural question would be, well, why didn't they just get the Holy Spirit from Philip? And the answer is they can't. They can't get this miraculous passing on of the Holy Spirit. So let's read it and notice this. The Bible says that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them, none of the Samaritans, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they, again that antecedent rule goes back to the apostles, then they, the apostles, laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, lest there be no misunderstanding about it, there's an incident recorded for us that follows that shows indeed that's what's happened. The apostles are laying hands on these new Christians in Samaria, and they're receiving the Holy Spirit. So we continue reading here. When Simon, that former sorcerer who had obeyed the gospel, when he saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, man, that's a good deal. He offered them money. And what he offered them money for, as it says in verse 19, he said, give me this power that on whoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. Now you know this. Philip can't do it because he's not an apostle. 
And people that Philip baptizes in water for forgiveness of their sins, so they become Christians, they can't do it because Simon was baptized, verse 13, but he can't do it. So only the apostles can lay hands on someone and pass on this miraculous filling of the Holy Spirit. So what do we have here as we look at this? And, and, well, maybe I should say this before I make that point. If we looked at 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6, we'd see Paul saying to Timothy, Stir up the gift that is in you by the laying on of my, and Paul is an apostle, my hands. Or we could see him in Romans 1 and verse 11 saying to the church at Rome, I've wanted to come see you for a long time that I might lay hands on you and give you some spiritual gift. It's consistent. So what's the point? Jesus has the Holy Spirit without measure. What can he do? He can baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Who did he baptize that we've seen so far? He baptized the apostles. What can they do? Can they baptize with the Holy Spirit? No. But they can lay hands on someone and pass miraculous ability onto that person. But when they lay hands on someone and pass that miraculous ability, can that person either baptize with the Holy Spirit? Well, no, not even the apostles could do that, only Jesus. Can they lay hands on someone and give miraculous ability? No. Because as we see here, Philip couldn't do it, and Simon couldn't do it, only Peter and John could do it. So we see a different measure. And that's why I think the term is used by John the Baptist. There are different measures, as it were, of the Holy Spirit. You can measure, and, and this is a crude way to say it, but I think it gets to your understanding. You can measure how much they got. How much of the Holy Spirit they got, or probably more proper, how much of the ability regarding the Holy Spirit they got. Jesus, all of it. The apostles, the ability to lay hands on, but not baptize. The people upon whom hands were laid, the ability to do a miracle, but neither to baptize with nor lay hands on someone else. And so we see then other first century members. They have spiritual gifts. I want you to go over and read with me beginning in 1 Corinthians 12. Because this was a big discussion in Corinth. If we put, and, and I'm not going to read all of chapters 12, 13, and 14 tonight for sake of time, but if we were, this is the picture we would get in Corinth, which I think is a microcosm of any church in the first century, whether it's in Samaria or Jerusalem or anywhere else. You have a time, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians being written in, the, in probably the mid-50s, and by, by that time, I would venture to say there's, you know, no more than ten books or so of the New Testament written. So, you know, a third, not even a third of the New Testament is written. So what do you see then? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 12. What is the case with the members of the church in the first century is they're being baptized for forgiveness of their sins. They become Christians. There is a church, like this one, a congregation of people. Whereas you and I do everything by the book, by the Bible. If we want to talk about what we do and why we do it, we appeal to the Bible and we say, and you hear it every single Sunday, somebody quotes it, we're doing this because as it says in such and such passage. A lot of those passages that they appeal to weren't even written by the time 1 Corinthians is written. 
So they can't appeal to book, chapter, and verse. They can't say, we're taking the Lord's Supper on Sunday because the Bible says in Acts 20 and verse 7 on the first day of the week. It would not even have been written. They can't say, we're taking the collection where you... You know, purpose from the heart, like I emphasized this morning, and putting it into the treasury. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, obviously he's writing 1 Corinthians, so it doesn't say it yet. So where do they get all that? Where do they get the truth, and how do they back it up? Because, A, you've got to have the truth. We get our truth from here. We look in here and we say, oh, there it is. That's when Paul said so and so. How do we back it up? Same way. We back up what we say you need to take the collection on Sunday. And we only do it on Sunday. Unlike a lot of other churches. Why do we do that? 1 Corinthians 16. We take the Lord's Supper on Sunday. We only do it on Sunday. Why? Acts 20, verse 7. But they don't have that. So let's look at what they do have. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and beginning in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, and you were carried away unto these dumb idols, even as others are led. And wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and, uh, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Now there are, and he begins to get into how you know all that, and how you confirm all that. Now there are diversities of gifts, that is, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts. Let's think about them for a moment. He'll name them. But probably when you say spiritual gifts or you say gifts of the Holy Spirit or miraculous gifts, people immediately begin to think of speaking with other tongues, other languages, and that's one. Or maybe healing. Somebody is sick, you know, for example, you can lay hands on someone and they're made well again, made whole again. That's another. But if you'll notice, Paul goes on to say there are differences of gifts. Quite a few of them, as a matter of fact. And he says, and there are differences of administrations, I want you to notice that in verse 5, but the same Lord. That speaks of authority, direction. Again, Jesus only having that. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man, or each man, each one, to profit will, the King James says. And that means to profit together with everybody. Okay, so what is he describing? He's describing a church in the first century. And this church in the first century would not have a Bible, not a New Testament, certainly not a completed one. And so they wouldn't have what you and I have, either to appeal to for doctrine or for confirmation of what we teach. But they would have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is that each member there in Corinth, just like... Every member in Samaria, or every member in Jerusalem, or every member in Ephesus, or wherever it might be, every member has a single gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice that. There is the manifestation of the Spirit, and it is given, and that's the way it literally reads, it is singularly given to everyone to profit with them. Now, notice verse 8. You can't miss this point. To one that is, to a single member, is given by the Spirit a gift, the word of wisdom. To another one, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To still another one, faith by the same Spirit. Again, to another one, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another one, the working of miracles. To yet another one, prophecy. To another one, discerning of spirits. 
to another one still different kinds of languages, to another one the interpretation of those languages. And do you get the point? Notice the hierarchy, if you want to call it that, or the table you could build. Jesus, all authority, total Holy Spirit without measure. Below that, apostles, without measure? No, it is measured, meter. They they are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they have the ability to lay hands on someone and give a spiritual gift. The one upon whom the hands are laid, they get one single spiritual gift, and they can do that under the operation of God, by the total direction of God. They can do it as needed so that the whole church profits. Now, is it limited? That is, is that ever going to change? The answer is yes. Go to chapter 13. In chapter 13... Well, let's back up and, and preface this. What's going on in Corinth then? we got this church and everybody's got a different ability. Everybody's got an ability, but it's different. Let's say if this were the church at Corinth, I could maybe, whatever, have a word of knowledge, but Montel would have a gift of healing. Ekong would have a gift of speaking in another language. And I began to look at that and I say, well, that's pretty cool what Ekong can do. I like to do that. And then they began, that began to grow into, I want that gift. I don't like mine, I want his. And then somehow, for some reason, and I, and I understand it, I think, because there's a fascination. You know, someone walks in the back door, and can, we have a lot of that here. Somebody can speak another language, we think it's cool. And we are inclined to say, hey, say something, and so and so, you know. We like it. And I don't think it's any different 2,000 years ago, they liked it. Paul is saying, hey, look, everybody's got a gift, and it's for everybody to come together. And if you notice in this passage, he will go on to say, go over with me to chapter 14 for a moment, and he will say, for example, in verse 26, how is it then, as he's drawing a conclusion about these spiritual gifts, how is it then, brother, when you come together, every one of you has, and he begins to talk about the different things they have. And you'll notice there are miraculous gifts listed in but it's not forever. Look back at chapter 13. What he's saying in chapter 13 is, instead of all of this fighting about spiritual gifts, you ought to be coveting earnestly the best gifts. And the best gifts, for example, love. And he speaks of love. He says, but let's come back to spiritual gifts. Look at verse 8. Love never fails. The word fails there means comes to an end. Love will never come to an end. Not even on the day of judgment will love come to an end. It will exist through eternity. God is love. Love never fails. However, notice verse 8. While love doesn't come to an end, it doesn't fail. Whether there are prophecies, that is miraculous ability to know something, that will fail. And tongues, that is miraculous ability to speak with other languages. That will cease. Or knowledge. You just know. You know You just know that you're supposed to be taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Why? Because the Holy Spirit just gave you the ability to know that. And someone else confirms it. That's coming to an end, he says. These will all pass away. Because now we know in part, verse 9. Why do we know in part? Because this ain't written. You don't have the full extent. 
understand it in the New Testament. You only have pieces of it, parts of it. So now we know in part, so we prophesy in part. I would suspect by the time 1 Corinthians is written, I believe James would have been written. I believe Matthew would have been written. There are certain books like that. Galatians is probably written. First and Second Thessalonians are probably written. And you would be able to appeal to those books. They didn't have book, chapter, and verse. But you could say, you know what? In the middle of Second Thessalonians, it speaks about so-and-so. And you could have confirmed it with the letter. But only parts and pieces. We prophesy in part because we only have part. But when? That which is perfect. Now, there are only two things perfect in the Word of God. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. This church isn't perfect, and this world isn't perfect. The only thing that is perfect is God. And the only other thing that the Bible says is perfect besides God is God's Word. If it's said here, when He who is perfect is come, we'd be talking about Jesus. Because Jesus, the perfect Son of God, is coming again, but He doesn't. It very specifically in the original language says, not He who, but that which... So we're talking about this. So when is this perfect? When is it complete? It's complete when John lays down the pen after writing Revelation 22. When that which is perfect is come. Now notice verse 10. Then that which is in part. What's in part? These gifts. Verse 8. The partial. The pieces. That which is in part will be done away. So what do we have? In the first century. We have Jesus with all authority. He baptizes a group of people, the apostles, with the Holy Spirit. They lay hands on people. They can do all miracles. They are inspired to teach, etc. They can lay hands on members of the church, people that are converted. And they can pass on a spiritual gift, like you see listed in 1 Corinthians 12. But they... That is, the people whom hands were laid on, a Timothy, a Luke, a Mark, somebody like that, a Philip, they could not pass it on. And what is specifically said here is, the reason for all of that is because it's temporary. John was going to finish Revelation in the 90s, and the truth is, by the end of the decade of the 60s in the first century, most everything, besides John's writings, had been written. There's not going to be a need. No more, no more so than there's a need today. If I need to teach someone something, I go to the Bible. And if somebody says, well, how, how can you prove that? I go to the Bible. And I show where it is written. Now, we can get into a discussion about whether or not this is the Bible. I've been in many of them, and no doubt you have too. But this is our backup. This is our confirmation. This is our proof. Our book, chapter, and verse for what we do. The first century, they had miraculous ability to accomplish exactly that same thing. To know the truth and back up the truth, but only until it was in written form. And after it was in written form, no need for that. Now, having said that, and going back to the original question, you say... Holy Spirit baptism, and you speak, many people, most people speak of the miraculous Holy Spirit baptism, this spiritual gifts and all of this. But we know that also to Christians in the first century, if you're still in 1 Corinthians, stay there for a moment. 
We know that all Christians in Corinth and all Christians in the first century were baptized not with the Holy Spirit, but by the Holy Spirit. You should understand, those are two very distinct prepositions. Just like in English, if I say with, I mean with. And if I say by, I mean by. If I say Gary is going with me, you know that Gary is going to accompany me somewhere. But if I say Gary is going by me to such and such a place, it indicates that I'm authorizing Gary to go to such and such a place. They're distinct prepositions. And so when we look in the first century, only a select group of people were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus never said for everyone to go to Jerusalem that he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Never said that. He doesn't promise it. There's nowhere that it indicates that that would be the case. But, look with me at 1 Corinthians 12 again, and start reading in verse 12. Paul says, As the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, and notice that, not with, and that's distinctly different, by one Spirit, are we all baptized into one body? Now that's exactly, in one sense, it's almost opposite of what happens in Acts 2. When you baptize someone with water, you immerse them in water. They go inside the water, if you will. When you baptize someone with the Holy Spirit, they're immersed in the Holy Spirit. They go inside, if you will, the Holy Spirit. It completely surrounds them, etc. That's being baptized with something. But if you're baptized by something, then that means that thing that is doing the baptism, the agent, is doing exactly the opposite. If I baptize someone, or let's say it like this, if, if, I, if someone is baptized with water, that person goes into the water. But if that person is baptized by Michael into the water, then he's baptized by me with the water. Now that's what's happening in this case with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing the baptizing. In the first case with Jesus in Acts 2, Jesus is doing the baptizing. And what he's baptizing people with, the apostles, is the Holy Spirit. But in this case, the Holy Spirit is doing the baptizing, and where he is baptizing people into, if you will, is the body of Christ. Read verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, we've been all made to drink into one Spirit. There's a total difference there. So, I think I'm going to close with that. You can look on your outline. I also noted the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'll save that because I know Wes and I are going to come back and discuss that. But if you look here, and we'll stop right here and just go back to the original question. Holy Spirit baptism. Is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit putting one into the body of Christ? Well, if you say specifically, baptism by the Holy Spirit, then that's what it is. But if you say baptism with the Holy Spirit, that's totally different as we discussed earlier. I don't know if that, I'll probably go away from this and say, boy, you could have done a better job with that. But nonetheless, um, that is it, sort of a complicated issue, and yet at the same time, maybe it keys upon that term, the measure of the Holy Spirit. To ask 
ask yourself the question, how much, it's crude, but it makes the point. How much does someone get, and more importantly, what ability did it give them? And we begin to sort it out. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, but you know that Jesus is the Son of God and you want to confess Him as so. If you're willing to give your life to Jesus and do anything and everything He wants you to do, if tonight you'll be baptized, your sins will be forgiven. Maybe you're here and you've done that, and you look at your life and you say, I need to, I need to do a better job of worshiping my Master every day in my life. I'd like to ask for prayers of people here to help me with that. Please come. All the same.